So uh, I'll preface the story by saying you guys know that I didn't become a Christian until I was an adult, right? So I'm going to preface the story that way first. It, when I was 16 years old, I know, I, just, I, I hesitate whether or not to put a picture up, but when I was 16, my family went on vacation to Hawaii. And, uh, and it was a very exciting time because my parents uh, were newly married. Uh, we gained a stepdad, two stepbrothers, so I have three brothers total. And uh, as we we're getting to know each other as a family together, 16-year-old me, not a Christian, remember that I said that first, all right? Uh, we went to a fancy restaurant together, and as uh, we were there, um, my role in the family was to entertain my brothers by clowning around a little bit. And so I was doing just kind of uh, normal teenage stuff, like I would take the tablecloth and tuck it into my shirt, pretending it was a napkin, and then uh, I started speaking to the waiter with a fake Chinese accent, and I know that's semi-racist. Uh, and then uh, just to, and then the kind of the culmination of things was that I took off my shirt in the middle of the restaurant just because I said, it's hot, just took it right off. And each time I did something like this, it increasingly irritated my mother, who being a very Asian, a first generation Asian mom, just kind of looked at me and kept growling under her breath, careful, I'm warning you, right? Now, Unknown to all, the culmination, but my, my, my masterpiece of the evening was that before any of the food had been served, in fact, before anyone had sat down at the table, I had gotten there first, and I had carefully unscrewed the tops of the salt and pepper shakers. And so you can imagine the anticipation on my lips, as well as how angry my mother felt when she went to shake salt and pepper on her very expensive fish. And all of the, the tops and the salt came pouring out. It was a both horrifying and glorious moment for me. Now, the problem was, instead of yelling at me in the middle of the restaurant as I expected to, her to, she just fell into this deafening silence. My brother turned to me and kind of whispered, danger, danger, Will Robinson. Like, you better hide in our room, better run straight to our separate hotel room, hide in there when we get back to the hotel because the writing is definitely on the wall. Now, do you know what that means? Are you familiar with that saying? It's that idea that there's warnings that you have received and that if you're not careful, that the end is coming for you, that whatever you thought was about to happen in your life, the writing has come, something bad is about to happen, your fate is sealed, and it's not just that the end is near, but that it's here, that it's arrived. And so what that, that picture looks like in most of our lives is sometimes you may feel like, well, I haven't lost my job yet, but the writing is on the wall. Or my marriage isn't going well, my spouse is about to leave, because the writing is on the wall. Or I go to the doctor's office and receive a diagnosis of cancer, and for me the writing is now on the wall. And so these warning signs, this phrase that many of us are familiar with, even if you don't know its origin, you're familiar with the idea of it. And where it comes to us historically is actually from the book of Daniel, chapter 5, which is where we're going to be this morning, as a king faces his imminent doom. <clears throat> and the question for us is, like him, as he receives warnings about danger that he's about to face, 
the end of the road for him. If we were in his shoes, if we knew that we were in danger and that the end was coming, how would we respond? Because how you respond to those moments speaks volumes about what you really believe, about what's really important to you when you know that danger or the end is near. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Daniel chapter 5. There are Bibles in the seat under you, if, uh, in front of you, if you don't have one of your own. And if you're new here or you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you. Those are our giveaway Bibles. It's also going to be up on the big screen. But we're going through this series, Pastor Daniel and I, through this series called Between Two Worlds, what it looks like to live for Jesus while living in Babylon. Because Babylon isn't just an ancient city way back then. It is an idea. It is a concept. It is a culture that is pervasive in the here and now. And through the book of Daniel, we discover what uncompromising faith in God and faithfulness in the world look like. And for those of you who are not familiar with this book, because the nation of Judah turned away from God to idolatry and immorality, just as God had warned them and prophesied that the Babylonian empire comes and conquers them as a people, taking their sons, including young Daniel, like at the beginning of this book was probably around age 15, in service to a pagan king and a pagan culture. And throughout the book, the question for these young men and the young people of, of, of Jewish origin was, am I going to be shaped by life in Babylon or by God? And as they're confronted by various compromises, they continue to trust God, remain faithful to Him, and they receive His favor throughout the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. But now here we are. Decades have passed. Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. There's a new king sitting on the throne who remembers Babylon's history and glory and idolatry, but does not remember Daniel or the God whose wisdom and power humbled the great King Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest king that the world had ever seen up to that point. And so what this new king does is he chooses the priorities and practices of the kingdom of the world in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. And now the writing is on the wall for him and for Babylon. And the question is, how will this king and kingdom respond as they face this imminent threat to them? And what we need to be thinking about is, how would I? Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or forefather, depending on your translation, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the, of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So for those of you who were here last time when Pastor Daniel preached from chapter 4, we've experienced a time jump, about 40 years. Nebuchadnezzar, the, king of, the great king of Babylon, had died by 562 B.C., followed by this kind of Game of Thrones treachery and assassinations, including one king only lasting for about a month. And what ends up happening four kings later is that his son-in-law, Nabonidus, is sitting on the throne after a bloody coup. It is a mess, totally Game of Thrones. Now, at this point in this story, he's now up in age, and so he started to hand over his royal responsibilities to his son. 
to co-rule as kind of like the semi-retired king emeritus. Now, unfortunately, he's forgotten the lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned in chapter 4, 40 years ago, about being humbled before the one true God of heaven and earth. And we know that because he decides to name his own son, Belshazzar, which means the Babylonian god Bel protect the king. And they're going to need that protection because there's a threat rising from the east as the Persian forces have swallowed up the Medes in their empire and combined into this fearsome force that is simply marching through the land and conquering everyone around them. And we're going to learn at the end of this chapter, which we won't read until next time, that this army of the Persian empire, they've already come and they're encamped right outside the city of Babylon itself during the events of this chapter 5. And so that is what the king is facing. And the question for him is, how does this king and this kingdom of Babylon respond to this imminent threat of danger? And the big idea that we want you to get from this passage this morning is that where you turn in response to a threat reveals what you really think about God. You're going to see that as we read throughout the rest of the passage. Because where you turn shows who you trust or what you trust for help and hope in the midst of this threat to you, what you're seeking as your protection, as your provision, as your priority. <clears throat> and so the question this morning is, where does the king and kingdom of Babylon turn to first? Verse 1, <clears throat> Bel- Belshazzar is in a little bit of denial here, it seems like, because when he looks at this, this situation, he decides, you know what? Enemies camped at my door, but I'm going to throw a raging party for a thousand of my nobles and officials in the city. Now, you should be reading this and thinking, shouldn't you be concerned, O king, when there's enemies knocking at the door? And his answer to you would be, not when you live in a city where the outer wall around it is about 90 feet high, that's about nine stories, about 20 feet thick, and the door that the enemy is knocking on are gates made of thick bronze not wood, unlike many other kingdoms, because wood is something that that can be destroyed very easily. But these bronze gates, they can't be burned. They can't be broken with a battering ram. So our, our doors are pretty secure. And even if they got through that somehow, we have this elaborate system within it of inner walls and moats with an actual river flowing through the city. And so the king is placing immense faith in the superiority and the formidability of the defenses of his city, that the human ingenuity of his, of his defenses can protect him from whatever danger is about to come. And his thinking is that all this time, Babylon has never been breached, and it never will. Now, secondly, not only is he relying on and turning to his faith in the defenses, and the security of the city. But you see in this passage, he's filling himself and his sycophants with wine. The wine is flowing like a river at this party for a thousand guests. Now, on the surface, he's putting up a brave front as a king. But the reality is, underneath, he is burying his head, burying his fear in the sand with his drunkenness. Because I want you to think about it this way. Uh, most of you are, many of you, maybe half of you, are too young to, to remember this, but way back at, at the turn of, of the millennium, there was this doomsday theory about the Y2K computer bug is coming for us, that it's going to cause a global uh, crash, that food supply uh, would, chains would break, that there would be gas shortages, that, that money would evaporate from the bank um, 
computer systems, that the power grids would fail, and it would bring civilization as we know it to a screeching halt. Now, for those of you who were alive back then, some, of, some people you saw would respond by doing things like stockpiling. It was not much different than how people responded during the pandemic, right? But back then, even it wasn't a new thing. Some people responded to their fear by stockpiling other stuff and bunkering down and just waiting for the end to come. And others responded to their fear by partying all night. It even became a, a phrase back then, to party like it's 1999. Thank you, old folk. Now, for those of you who were around back then, how many of you, be honest, you're a little bit scared when the clock flipped to midnight that night? And yet, how many of you were at a party anyways? And so what we see here is Belshazzar, he is partying in the face of death like it's 539 BC, which it is, because human nature has this tendency to medicate and escape its fears with distractions, with denial, with drunkenness, with indulgences. And many of you who are recovering addicts like me know exactly what, what that feels like. So in verse 2 to 3, as everybody in the club's getting tipsy, he brings out the gold and the silver cups, the ones that his former king, Nebuchadnezzar, stole from, the, from God's temple 70 years ago. We saw it in chapter 1. These vessels that were set apart as holy to God, used for the worship of God, and now being misused for this drunken orgy. He passes them out to all the guests, all of his many wives and concubines like their party favors. Not for the glory of God, but we see in verse 4, to the praise of Babylonian idols of gold and silver, of metal, wood, and stone. Why is he doing that? Why is he praising them? Because as he's passing out these party favors, these uh, very expensive consecrated items that he's treating as party trinkets, he is making a statement of faith. I'm not concerned about the threat outside the gates because the gods of Babylon have overcome the God of Israel, and so surely they will protect us from the Persian ones as well, just like my name's sake. May the god Bel protect the king. And so what we see here is that in imminent danger, Babylon first turns to its idolatry and indulgences to deflect its fear and foes. It's that picture of, you know what? For us, well, when I don't like what the one true God has to say, His will, His ways of doing things, then I'll just make up my own to fit my own proclivities and preferences. I'll trust in my human ingenuity and security, and that might be an idol, like the walls of Babylon. Or I'll drown my fear in liquor or getting high or escaping, whatever the treasures and pleasures of this world may be. But as I... In bury myself in indulgences, that also becomes an idol to distract me from my fears. And so I wonder for you, when you feel threatened in life, when your life feels like it's collapsing, the question is, where do you turn first? And like the king of Babylon, maybe the question is, what idol are you really trusting in place of turning to Jesus, to God? And for some of us, it's our defensive walls, just like the king here. But your defensive walls are your position or your performance or your paycheck, your health or wealth. These are the things that you count on when you're feeling overwhelmed, only for those things to be overcome just as Babylon will. For others, 
The question might be, what escapes or indulgences do you use to distract or drown out your fear? Now, as a result of this indulgence into sinfulness and selfishness, God finally responds. Look at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing nor make known it, uh, to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. In response to this incredibly blasphemous act of kind of trampling on the things that honor God, taking something that was set aside for God's purposes and using it uh, for selfish, profane ways, immediately in verse 5 it says, immediately in that moment a supernatural hand appears. It's the same fingers that inscribed the Ten Commandments onto stone tablets on Mount Sinai and gave them to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 31. Now etching this mysterious message on the walls in front of this king. Suddenly this king doesn't feel like such a big man anymore. And I want you to understand this. I know some of us think like, I would love to hear from God and for him to speak to me like that. This is not a moment that is comforting or encouraging to him. This scene is playing out more like a horror movie. So I want you to think about this. If some mysterious gigantic hand supernaturally appeared right in front of you as an apparition. And so in verse 6, Belshazzar sets the new world record for how quickly you can get sober. The color drains from his face. The strength drains from his legs. His blood pressure, his anxiety are skyrocketing. He falls to the floor, trembling in fear because there's no strength left in his body. In verse 7, we know that this isn't just some vision or dream or hallucination because everyone can see the inscription on the wall. And the question is, now where is Belshazzar going to turn for a solution? The king calls up his wise men, his senior staff, and for those of you who haven't been following with us, these aren't just men who are knowledgeable in politics and rhetoric or sociology or military strategy. These are his spiritual advisors who would use astrology and pagan rituals to interpret messages they believed were from the spirit world or from the gods. And the king, he offers them this desperately massive reward to whoever can decipher both the message and its meaning. I will clothe you in royal robes of purple. I will give you the gold presidential medal of honor. And I'm going to promote you to the third highest position in the kingdom after Belshazzar and his father, his semi-retired father, Nabonidus. And the question is, are these wise men up for this challenge? Verse 8, they all shuffle in. They, some of them probably briefly considered for a moment, like maybe making up something. But none of them can really unravel this situation. And so we see in verse 9, the king, he is deathly pale. He's deathly scared. The guests are flipping out because the reality is, the point of this section is that in imminent danger, Babylon turns to worldly wise men that will ultimately fail us. 
there comes a point at which every wise man in every age, in every culture will fail. And I want you to be thinking about who is that for you today? Who do you turn to to seek advice and answers and aid? Often in place of God. You see, when I think about our world today, most of the time we'll look to something like uh, science or medicine or education, and there is nothing wrong with that. I completely believe, number one, that first of all, there are godly, Jesus-loving people working in education or in medicine or in science who speak the truth to us, who speak God's truth to us, who are willing to pray for us. And even those who aren't followers of Jesus, they can and do have wisdom, some wisdom. For example, if you think about the king's wise men, there's no way that they could have lasted this long if they didn't get it right some of the time. They're not like, you know, sitting around the king, hey, what's one plus one? Three, then it would be like off with their heads, right, if they were useless wise men. So, of course, they have some wisdom that they can offer to us. But the question is, when we face things like our despair or death, when there is the mysteries and the meaning of life at stake, the wise men of our world will always fail us they'll always fall short compared to wisdom from God. And I think about it even this way. You see, long time ago, uh, academics used to point to this chapter of the Bible as proof that the Bible is untrue. And the reason why is because everybody knew that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon before it fell, and that there had been no historical record of anyone named Belshazzar. It was just a made-up thing. But you see, archaeologists kept digging. They kept digging, and they discovered this these things that we've been labeled as the Nabonidus cylinders that Nabonidus the king had inscribed that talked about his accomplishments, recording all the great things that he had done, all the gods, different gods that he worshipped, and also confirming that his eldest son, Belshazzar, was the crown prince regent that archaeologists dug up. And so what we discover is that apart from Jesus and his word, science, history, human understanding have its limits. You see, they can only confirm God's truth. And when they don't, it doesn't mean God's truth is wrong. It just means that sometimes we need to keep digging. Now, the wise men that oftentimes we turn to, that many people turn to in this world, that I'm most concerned about because of the way that it infiltrates the church and divides the church, it's politicians. Now, get ready. I'm going to offend everyone here, all right? Okay, just brace yourselves. But what we find is that politicians are unable to solve society's problems. The human impulse is towards corruption or greed or the abuse of power. And so let me offend everyone this morning. On the right, we have people who talk about the importance of family and traditional values and the integrity of leadership and then put someone like Donald Trump, Trump up as their champion. And then on the left... There are people who talk about caring for the poor and the vulnerable. But studies reveal that most people who who proclaim those things from the left aren't actually personally involved. That statistically, they give less to poverty relief than their counterparts on the right, actually. And it actually turns out the people who are the most generous, who volunteer most in their community, who help the most strangers, who get involved in disaster relief the more, most, is not determined by right politics or left politics, but those who are practicing Christians, as many studies show. 
And in fact, one study showed that, that, that practicing Christians, that's people who uh, proclaim a belief in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the Son of God, who died and rose uh, to f- pay for our sins and give us eternal life, and who r- participate church on a regular basis. It's, that study showed that Christians were 75% more likely to give, and they, they also gave significantly, actually exponentially more. Like that the average person who was not a Christian gave about $500 a year for, towards charities, and that the average Christian household gave at least $3,000 a year towards charitable help. Now, my point here is not to pick on the right or left, so don't, please don't email me about it. But to, the point is that political wise men of the world are unable to provide an example for you or answers to life's hurts and hardships. They will ultimately fail us. We need a word from God. And so, as we think about all these things, I want you to be honest with yourself for a a moment. In your life, when there's difficulties, when dangers come, which wise men in this world do you turn to in place of Jesus and His Word? Pastor Josh, you know, we're all human. Sometimes I slip up and uh, I turn to the idols of security and comfort. I turn to counsel apart from Jesus. But in the end, I do turn to God at some point. And that's a good thing. But it's not just about if you turn to, to God. It also matters how you turn to God. Let's wrap up this passage, verse 10. The queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, remember not his actual father, this is five kings later, Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Take note of his name, very similar to this king's name. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So verse 10. Panic has been spreading throughout the palace. Now, the, the party atmosphere isn't just raging. Like the, people can hear the screams and the panic of, of this giant supernatural hand inscribing things on the wall. And the queen mother comes into the scene. We know it's the queen mother because all of Belshazzar's wives are at the party already. We saw in verse 2. And so this is his mother, or perhaps his mother-in-law. And she hears this ruckus. She steps in, Oh, king, live forever. Now, you need to pull yourself together a little bit. Put on your big boy pants. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom that you can get help from. Daniel, he's old at this point. He's retired. He's now somewhere in his 80s. But she describes this man as full of light and wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And this is really significant because what she says here sounds exactly like the way that Isaiah describes a coming servant of the Lord who has great wisdom and understanding and knowledge in in Isaiah chapter 11, a coming Messiah to guide them and save them. 
And so this is a really good sign that she would point to someone like that to seek help. But listen carefully to what she actually emphasizes when she talks about him. This Daniel has the spirit of the gods, plural, has the wisdom of the Babylonian gods, plural again. And your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him the chief of all the wise men and magicians. Not that Daniel is different from them, he's just the best of them. She doesn't say that because of the way he prayed to God for help, or his wisdom from God, or his integrity from God, but because, in verse 12, because he can interpret dreams, because he can explain mysteries, because he can solve problems. In other words, he can do what any pagan wise man can do. He just does it better. That's how she sees him, just another wise man, <coughs> excuse me, but probably the best of them. And his name is Daniel, she says, and you, those of you who remember from chapter 1, his name Daniel in honor of his God. That's what his name is, in honor of his God. But Nebuchadnezzar renamed him Belteshazzar, like you, Belshazzar, in honor of ours. And so question, is she recommending Daniel because she honors him as a man of God? Because he has repeatedly demonstrated the wisdom and sovereignty of God over kings and kingdoms this past 70 years. She sees Daniel as a servant of the king. She sees the God that he worships as one of many, and that both of them are to be called upon as subservient to the purposes of Babylon. And so what we find here is that the third temptation or the third way that we go about facing things in imminent danger, that Babylon only turns to God to use him instead of to honor and worship him. That they see him as kind of like a genie in a magic lamp. He's one of many gods in their arsenal that they can call upon to help them. But he is this magic genie in a magic lamp where if we just rub him the right way, then he'll give us what we want. And do you know that we can also be like that with God? That when crisis or catastrophe come, we may turn to God, but there are times that we treat him like he's a pinata and prayer is a stick. And as we beat him with our prayer stick, where's the stuff, God? I'm supposed to have good health. I'm supposed to have a good job. I'm supposed to have a good life. I'm disappointed in you, Jesus. And if I get cancer, then you get the finger. That's the deal. That's the way it's going to work between us, God. Just so you know, that's how it's going to be. If I lose my job, if my marriage fails, if my child dies, and I am done with you. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to follow you because I'm using you to get someone or something else that I really want. And if you don't give it to me, then I'll go get it myself. I'll just go find an alternate savior. How often when we face difficulty, threats, danger, do we treat God like he is a genie in a bottle? And all three of these areas that we looked at, when threats come to us and we turn to idolatry and indulgences, when we turn to wise men of the world instead of towards the Lord, when we turn to God only to use Him instead of to worship Him. It reminds me of a story that I, I read recently. In 1974, many of you probably have heard of this high-wire artist. His name is Felipe Petit, or Petit. He's famous for walking between the towers of the World Trade Center back when they were up without a safety net. 
He's the only man to ever do that, 1974. Now, what's interesting about him is that early on in his career, he trained at this circus in France under a mentor, and whenever the big top was empty, he would go out and practice walking the wire. And there's one time he's walking carefully but confidently across that thin wire. And as he's about to reach the platform, he started taking aggressive steps forward towards it because he knew he was right near the end of it. And he had completed the journey so far. But it caused the wire to start shaking precariously, and he ended up actually tumbling off of it, and just by the grace of God, was able to grab the wire with both hands, hanging on while his, his uh, pole plummeted to the ground, nearly falling to his death. <coughs> Breathing heavily, he was able to finally make his way to the ladder, crossing the wire, and as he's swinging down, it turns out his mentor had been observing him this entire time. Just sitting there watching him go across and making all these mistakes. And his mentor, as he's climbing down the ladder, quietly observes to him some advice. You know, uh, most wire walkers die when they think that they've arrived, but they're actually still on the wire. In other words, if you have three steps to do and you take those steps arrogantly, he said, if you think you're invincible, you are going to die. And it made me think of this passage because, you see, there are moments in our lives when we are also caught on a high wire, the winds around us are strong, the danger to our lives or our family is real, and often we respond to these threats by relying on ourselves or something other than God. And either way, it is the height of arrogance and pride. We rush our steps declaring, I've arrived. I know better how to take care of myself or my family or my future or my finances. And I'm going to trust in someone or something other than God, the God of heaven and earth, who rules and reigns over all of creation, all of the nations, all of history, but somehow I know better than him. It's the height of arrogance. And frighteningly, we do that when we're on the high wire. And it's a pattern that's repeated throughout the Bible, like King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, like King Belshazzar here in chapter 5, forgetting the lesson that God is still in charge. No matter who I am, no matter what I have in this life as resources, and may I suggest to you that the, added, the antidote to pride going before a fall is humility before God. And so perhaps for you, it might start with a small, bold step. Uh, Pastor Daniel and I have been challenging you each month. We're giving you daily challenges from the book of Daniel to practically live for the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of the world. And so today, we're starting a new challenge. We want to challenge you to practice humility before the sovereign God of heaven and earth through daily repentance. What that means is that before you go to sleep, just end your day with the Lord in some repentance, just for five minutes each day. And it looks like this. In prayer, you might confess to him, I have been proud. I have been sinful. That when I face afflictions and adversity, I try to save myself, my finances, my family, my future. I do all those things without you. Instead of trusting you, instead of turning to you, I've replaced you with other things. And so we want to challenge you for the next month, just spend five minutes before you go to bed in humility, humbly coming before God and bringing before maybe some of the things from this very passage that as we turn to Him, I'm turning away from the idols I've trusted, the security, the comforts, the counsel I seek in place of you, God. 
or for all those times when I treat you as a tool for me to use instead of a God to worship. And instead, just as Belshazzar looked to, this, to God's servant in Daniel for understanding and wisdom and knowledge in verse 11, these all point forward to a greater servant, a greater Savior, a greater Son with even greater wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in Isaiah chapter 11. And His name is Jesus that we would look to the one sent by God to guide us and save us from our sin, suffering, and death. It's not just a theoretical or spiritual moral concept. In the nitty-gritty of your life, when you are going through a hard time, when you are facing challenges, when you are actually facing the imminent end, do you know that God provides help and hope in a Savior named Jesus? And so I want you to be thinking about where is the writing on the wall of your life today? Where does it feel like you're hitting the end of the road? And this historical account is a warning, not just for kings of the past, but for us today, that when crises and catastrophe arrive, how will we respond? Who will we trust? And how do we treat God, this sovereign living God of heaven and earth? And my counsel to you is may we take a posture of humility, that we would turn away from the cheap imitations and all their limitations and turn back to the one who made us, who saves us, who loves us, that we might put our trust in a greater king and a greater kingdom that lasts forever. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the goodness of your word. We are reminded again and again that we are not so in control of our lives as we think, that we are not the master of our own destiny. We see it all the time in other people's lives, and at some point we experience it in ours. And when the writing is on the wall, in whatever area of life we face, may we rise to the moment by actually sinking to our knees in hum humility, turning to a God who is good, who cares about us, and even though we can ask you whatever we want, we can ask you for our needs because you are a good father. We can approach you as children, knowing that we are loved and saved by you. We also know there are times that we do not ask for the things that, that are good for us, or sometimes we don't know what the future holds. And in those moments, we ask that you would help us to trust you, that you are still a good, good father. Would you help us, O oh God? The system of the world has all these things that, that call to us to turn to for help and hope before we come to you or in place of you. We repent of those things. And we ask that during this season of thanks, thankfulness and reflection that our hearts would also reflect on putting ourselves in the right position before you, that you are God, we are not. And though we fall and though we fail, that we have a great and loving Savior, our hope and help in this life and the life to come. So we bow before you once again, loving you, trusting you, humbling ourselves, and asking that when the writing is on the wall for us, may we find our peace, our joy, our comfort, our wisdom, our guidance, our life in our one true Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it is in his beautiful name that we pray.